Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. For a number of weeks now, we have been having shows specifically dealing with COVID-19, the coronavirus. We decided to do a three-part series, which did end last week. We know that this is still something looming large in people's lives. If you are hearing this podcast episode during April of 2020, and we haven't forgotten We just know that a lot of people have expressed that while they really appreciated the three episodes, they're also really wanting to get back into something that feels regular and usual, more of the style of the show that we've done in the past and will resume now, just to help people get back into a kind of a feeling of normalcy to a certain degree. So with that... I will now introduce my guest. Today on the show, it is my pleasure to have Joe Zimhart back. And he began his research into cultic influence in 1980 after ending his two-year devotion to a New Age sect. He began to work professionally as an intervention specialist and exit counselor in 1986 on an international scale. From 1985 through 1992, he was chairman of the Interdenominational Cult Information Organization in New Mexico. Since 1998, he has worked in the crisis department of a psychiatric emergency hospital in Pennsylvania, and he continues to assist families with interventions and former members in recovery. He's done a lot of media, a lot of lectures. He also had written a book in the past. Mushroom Satori, The Cult Diary, and it was released in 2013. And he's back today to tell us a little bit more about his kind of interesting experiences in this world and also to tell us about his brand new book. Here's Joe now. So I want to welcome Joe Zimhart back to the show because uh, we were able to have a conversation already a while ago. So if people want to go check out the last time we talked, it was really a lot about the work and about the whole uh, kind of world of channeling and uh, sort of the esoteric quote unquote arts. And I wanted to be able to talk to you today because it's always nice to talk to you, um, but also because you just published a book, Santa Fe, Bill Tate and Me, How an Artist Became a Cult Interventionist. It's a great title and uh, I would love to be able to talk more about it and also just ask you some questions about the work that you do that I I think that I had in my notes that I'd wanted to be able to uh, ask you about the last time we talked. So if you don't mind reintroducing yourself to the people listening and watching today. Yeah, hi, thanks, Rachel. Uh, My name is Joe Simhart. Uh, as Rachel mentioned, I'm on here for the second time with a podcast. Um, the reason for this interview is this book I published, and I got to say it's self-published, so I had to re-edit it once at least already and uploaded the 200 changes, but those are all on available right now uh, as, as it is. I started this project of, of writing about 
answering this question, how did you get into deprogramming or how did you get into cult work? You know, whenever I lectured. And, and so I started answering that in written form back around 15 years ago. And I had written a manuscript that was maybe 450 pages long at one point and submitted it. And one publisher was very interested in it. But once they got my manuscript in, uh, in Santa Fe, they, the editors just didn't think they could handle it. So I, I just think it wasn't put together very well. So I let it sit. And, and for some reason, again, I decided to rewrite the whole thing over a year ago. And I've been working on it quite a bit. Uh, shrinking it down and and framing it mostly within the years 1975 through the early 1990s. And, and so that covers my most active period in intervention work. And it also covers how I got into this field, which is um, a difficult question to answer uh, because there's no school for exit counselors or deprogrammers. There's no course you can take. Uh, there's no licensing procedure to go through. Um, there's no oversight committee to see if you're doing well or not. Uh, it's basically a self-promoted, self-made business. Uh, it came as a reaction to the relative explosion of cults during the late 60s and, and early 70s in that ferment that, that we call the hippie area and um, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that culturally, which uh, I go into a little bit in the book. So, so I got swept up in all of that seeker sort of thing, post-hippie, post-college. And uh, for me, it came through the art world, uh, how I entered the world of uh, esoteric groups and, and seeking in theosophy and other areas for, for answers to questions I had. Mm, okay. So I know we, t we talked a little bit about your work in art and how it sort of led you in, but I would love for you to be able to talk again about that because there is so much that is surprising to people about why they go into this kind of work and actually other kinds of work where it's not mainstream per se, but you want to see what drew people in. And I think for people to be able to reflect for themselves, what was it? What was it that drew me in and kind of kept me there and also made me feel like I wanted to be able to participate in helping people free themselves from it? So it's sort of multi-step. So what was the door that opened up for you going into this field that was connected to your art? Well, in the book, it all happened the first day I drove into Santa Fe and I met this guy, Bill Tate, at his art gallery. I had just finished studies at the Pennsylvania Academy in Philadelphia. And um, for one reason or another, I was separated from my first wife. And, and I drove out to New Mexico to, to get a, a new start in the art world. I knew that Santa Fe was a thriving art town. Maybe the second or third largest art market in the United States was there. About 200 art galleries at the time I drove into town. So I met this artist, uh, uh, Bill Tate, a real character, and I wanted to honor him with this book as well. While I was in his gallery that first day, I, I borrowed a magazine he had. The, the American Artist Magazine had a cover article on an artist named Nicholas Rorick. Uh, he died in 1947. Um, him and his wife, Nicholas and Helena Rorick, started something called the Agni Yoga Society 
Uh, I didn't know that when I read the article at, at first, I, I kind of get the idea that he was a mystic as well as a painter. His paintings are quite striking. They're illustrative of mountains and saints and very colorful, uh, somewhat reminiscent of Gauguin, but much more um, um, illustrative, uh, a sense of Oriental Japanese feeling to some of his work. Uh, so that was one thing. The other thing was uh, this Manly P. Hall's uh, book called The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Now that's a very enticing title. And Hall was a theosophist who uh, uh, revered Madame Blavatsky. And in his book, he has a chapter on her and on the Rosicrucians, on Egyptian mysteries, on Freemasonry, and, and the esoteric nature of those things, which I had not really looked into very deeply before. So I was uh, intrigued. Well, over the years, I got more deeply involved in reading about Agni Yoga theosophy, and I got caught up in the uh, studying the I Am teachings, which was a branch of that kind of teaching in New Mexico, in Santa Fe. Friends I had met that first day in Santa Fe who had a, it was called Timeless Tintype, it was a photography business. They had just returned in 1975 from a large conference in California run by Elizabeth Clare Prophet mm. and the, mm -hmm. what was called Summit Lighthouse and then Church Universal and Triumphant. So I met them already and I got to know them, but they didn't tell me what they were into until years later when I had a talk with this one lady that Faith who um, was surprised that I had already studied these teachings that her group was already teaching. In other words, the Agni Yoga was at the highest level of their school at Church Universal and Triumphant and not many people in that school had studied the teachings yet. So. I was kind of intrigued with what's going on out there. And of course I went out, as I've mentioned before, and I got, went to three conferences over a period of one year and got caught up in it quite a bit. My first wife left me in the middle of all that. I started using their chanting techniques and, and uh, reading endless amounts of literature they produced and attending some meetings. By the end of the year though, I got very um, uh, skeptical about what I was experiencing. And that's when uh, certain things happened and I began to research the phenomena of cults and, and mind control and hypnosis and comparative religions. And I mean, I, I just was angry at myself for getting caught up in the group and my anger drove me into deeper and deeper research. And, and that got me then involved with meeting people that were ex-members of this cult, Church Universal, uh, one was Gregory Mall, another one was uh, Marilyn Malik, and they introduced me to Margaret Singer, who I met in 1982. And if anyone knows who Margaret Singer was, she was perhaps the heart and soul of what later became the anti-cult movement in terms of being able to define and and uh, help people mm -hmm. uh, with with that sort of uh, thing. And, and then I got to know different exit counselors and the programmers. Uh, in the coming years, in 1985, a couple of them asked me to help them on a case, and that's how I got into the whole thing. Now, to, to just to give you an idea, a lot of the modern artists I had studied even before the Nicholas Rorich article I read were into theosophy, and that's what intrigued me about it. I kept hearing about this Blavatsky connection and, and over the years since probably the late 60s, but I never really looked into her because she was kind of bizarre, frankly, you know, when you look at her life, very colorful woman, and um, perhaps a proto-feminist in some ways, but also um, 
maybe manic, maybe crazy in some way. I, I, I mean, she would stay up for nights after nights uh, writing these channeled documents or you know, spewing out information that later became the secret doctrine. You know, she would do things like that, full of plagiarisms, by the way, which were researched later. But, but in any case, she's a very intriguing woman. And I mean, to this day, the Theosophical Society see her as a great person. They nickname her the Sphinx, meaning she's kind of an enigma. You're not quite sure what she's really about, but they believe the teachings that she uh, wrote about. So um, just today, in fact, I got an email from a theosophist in the the United Kingdom, and he was interested in this. The first thing I wrote critical of, of theosophy and cults was called Mad Bee's Myth that I wrote in 1982. And it's about 100 pages long, and it's just in PDF form. It was never published, but a lot of people have read it. He somehow found out about it, so I just sent it to him for free. So I'm going to have an interaction with him and see what he thinks. So anyway, it's interesting that, that this has taken up so much time in my life since I entered that guy's art gallery in 1975. You know, you never know what's going to happen. You know, had I entered another gallery, who the hell knows what would happen? Right. Life is very interesting that way and unpredictable in that way. I want to go back to a couple things that you said so far, and then let's keep going. And I and I also don't want you to reveal all that is in your book, because I I want people to be able to to buy it so they can so they can kind of get more of a sense of the details and the story and the progression and and all of it. But I I wanted to be able to talk about Madame Blavatsky. Because when you were saying that uh, there was this writing that she did for days and days or all night, all night, and that there was a lot of plagiarism, that's the first part that I wanted to go back to. So whom did she plagiarize from? Where did she get some of her content? Do you know? Well, according to her her main partner, uh, Colonel Olcott, um, who was the co-founder of the Theosophical Society with her, um, she was at the time that she wrote her two large tomes, Isis Unveiled and then The Secret Doctrine in the late 1880s. She had about 100 books with her in a trunk, and uh, she would refer, them, refer to them a lot. So there was a scholar, uh, Bruce F. Campbell, in 1980, he published a book called Ancient Wisdom Revived, and he documents quite a few of the plagiarisms in that book. There was another person, his last name was Coleman, in the early part of the 20th century, who um, analyzed the secret doctrine. He was the first to point out all the plagiarisms. So it, it's been well known that she copied passages that, that were unattributed. You know, in, in a sense, uh, she claimed that she was just stringing pearls of wisdom together from all kinds of different sources and putting them in the book. But, but you got the sense that she was also in touch with these masters. Moria, Kuthumi, Dwakul, the Old Man of the Hills, and St. Germain were the main five, as you would mention, that would influence her through some telepathic means. So there was this supernatural element to her writing that people believed in as well. Uh, it wasn't just merely plagiarizing or using 100 books to, to write her books. Now, she used ideas from a guy named Eliphas Levi. She used ideas from the early Rosicrucians and some of their books. Um, uh, the, the list is pretty long. I don't want to go through that now, but if you want to look at a more recent example of uh, 
of criticism of her is, is Bruce Campbell's Ancient Wisdom Revived. When you were talking also about these other um, kind of uh, spiritual sources of her information, these people who sometimes seem to be um, touted as ancient spirits or warriors or whatever else from thousands of years ago or from Atlantis or wherever else, you know, it, it becomes, of course, then hard to disprove uh, if you can't go to the source of the information and say, hey, did did you actually say this? And did you give that to Madame Blavatsky? So it sort of goes into this, you know, down the rabbit hole where there is no way to prove or disprove kind of any of it. And I'm, I'm wondering uh, a, something about that, which is that I find, and you probably find too, and I was going to ask you about why you think this is, that sort of the, the, le- the less provable information or the more esoteric it is, the less we understand it, the, the more sometimes we think it's genius or enlightened. Right. And so I'm wondering what that's about. What do you think? Well, a couple things. Well, one is it's, 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 you know, I've been calling it cosmic narcissism or, or basic narcissism. In other words, we want to believe that something inside of us will guide us to know what's right and what's not right, what's real and what's not real, and maybe even predict the future a little bit, you know? So that can become perverted, you know, when, for instance, people get into gambling. You think you're going to hit it big that day, and uh, that part of that part of yourself will engage and will keep engaging and reengaging because you want to keep believing it. In, in the same sense, uh, I mean, astrologers, for instance, depend on this part of ourselves that that wants to believe that there's something out there in the cosmos that cares about us. In other words, all these constellations out there, Sagittarius and Capricorn and the moon rising and, and, and you know, the second house being squared by the Saturn return and, and you know, all kinds of information like that cares about you as a person. That's quite a heady feeling that, that this chart, the astrologer is, is talking from, is the cosmos talking to you, right? Mm. So any little bit of information that even seems true is magnified because it's coming from the gods or coming from the stars or coming from, you know. So the the problem is that this kind of information that Blavatsky was given out or that an astrologer gives out is extraordinary in its claims. So the skeptic that I became later, the pragmatist, says, well, if you're going to give me an extraordinary claim, I need extraordinary evidence to see if it's backed up. If you're not going to provide me with the extraordinary evidence, well, it's just your word, you know, and I don't, I'm not going to believe it. So I'm walking away from it. Right. That's where the problem comes in is people can't walk away from it because they want to feel the same way. They want to feel that Blavatsky is in touch with these great masters who have somehow conquered time and space Mm -hmm. and understand the perennial wisdom behind human thought and human religion Mm -hmm. and that they can feed us information to guide us. And they also want to feel special that they're somehow being picked to be guided by this source of information. You know, so somebody picks up the secret doctrine or an astrology book or whatever and want to believe in it, they're going to feel guidance coming from it somehow. They're going to fill in the information necessary, and they get caught up in that web very, very easily. 
Mm-hmm. Right. It's very, it's interesting that you should mention about astrology because I remember doing an exercise one time with somebody who said to me that she was sure something bad was going to happen to her because she had read her astrological forecast and she already had an anxiety disorder and she was really panicked. And she said that she knew uh, what her astrological sign was and she checked every day to make sure that things were going to be okay, basically. And that particular day, whoever wrote this um, kind of forecast said something about be careful. And it, it triggered an anxiety disorder where we ended up actually needing to have a session with her from her home, even though she lives a mile away, she couldn't get in her car. She was so afraid. So I thought, okay, so an idea popped into my head and I went online and I said, well, you know, if I look up the astrological sign and I read what it says from a different source, here's what it says today. Uh, And I read it and she said, oh, that's really calming. That's really good to know. Maybe this person got it wrong. Um, and she said, well, that really helps calm me down. And what I didn't mention until the week later, because I wanted to make sure that she made it through the day was I just picked a random sign. I didn't pick hers, but she assumed that, that I was talking about her sign. And if I was, then somehow it would be right. right. And it would undo the panic she was feeling and I wanted to help her get through the day. But of course that became the topic of conversation the next week that it's not a perfect science, Right. that it, it doesn't mean something that I can read, you know, you can be a Sagittarius, but I can read, you know, the forecast for Taurus and it can speak to you if you think it's for you. Right. Uh, and I thought that that was, uh, I thought that was very interesting. And I, and I also know how, People can be influenced by it. And I know that I can be influenced by it. I mean, I... We all can. The reason is, it, it, I think it taps into our narcissism. It's about us. You know, if you're, if you're a Libra or like I am, or if you're a Sagittarius, you, you want to feel it's about you because that's your territory. It's personal. So that's how it gets its hook into you. Now, I studied astrology after I left Carter. I lived with an astrologer uh, for a little while and so I know how to cast a horoscope. I, used to, I knew how to do that. And I also, as a result of that, figured out how an astrologer can manipulate a person to agree with the teach, with the, uh, the reading. You know? and, and so if you're a good astrologer, you will never be wrong. That's how tricky it is. There are thousands of little combinations going on in a horoscope when you, when you look at it. And you can bounce around there and tap dance as an astrologer into all kinds of things. And and. And you'll notice with your client, they're going to be agreeing with some and maybe not on another. And you'll go with the agreements and they'll go away satisfied. So if you're good at it, you will always be able to satisfy your customer and get them to come back and pay you more. I mean, the psychic readings work on the same principle. You know, you have to get something that sounds right or true or, wow, no one ever knew that about me. You know, those kinds of reactions are what they're trying to get. And once they get that reaction, they got the person hooked. By the way, there's been an upsurge in astrology in, among millennials. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just read it uh, in, in a Skeptical Inquirer. There's been a real upsurge in interest in that kind of stuff in the occult and in astrology again. And so what do you think that's about? I think we're having a second wave of, of uh, 60s, 70s stuff where there's this, it's, it's a new form of it because of 
of the of the social media that we have now and everything's online but but there's there seems to be a new interest in gurus and uh astrology magical thinking you know and and you got to remember these kids were raised with stuff like harry potter and which is full of magic mm. star wars I mean, you name it it's just full of magic powers and 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 ways of you know psychics or heroes in, in these kinds of uh, uh films um i don't know we're, you know we're kind of reaping the rewards of our own entertainment industry uh you garbage in garbage out you know that's partly how it looks to me anyway <laughs> I think you know it's fascinating to hear that because I wonder also if there's there is something about millennials who and rightly so don't trust the powers that be and when you feel like you're kind of needing to fend for yourself then I think you will go towards the thing that makes you feel like you have this path towards safety you've tapped into the thing that is going to keep you on an even keel, or you can predict what's going to happen. And I think, you know, kids, for example, like runaways, will if they feel like their their parents were just not there or able to protect them, they'll learn how to fend for themselves and be streetwise. But the problem is that when people I think are trying to be streetwise, they tap into things that are sometimes just as true as they are false. And it's hard to distinguish. Um, and so I, I find that very interesting that there is a surge in that kind of thinking or an openness to the need for protection and the need for prediction. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a matter of feeling, uh, secure in yourself. We live in an anxious age, like you said, you know, there's so much self stuff going on because people aren't satisfied with their self. And I, I think there's a, there's a lot of insecurity in 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 our era now and um you know we, we also have a lot of polarization as we know in politics but it happens in a lot of other areas as well I, I i don't know i don't have any answers for all of that i just observe it mostly and and try to help people in my little way uh when they when they contact me about these problems so that's all i've been doing is just one person at a time it's hard to uh come up with anything like a sweeping answer. And if you do, you're probably wrong for a lot of people because sweeping answers don't cover anything in depth. You know, that's the problem with it. Yeah, no, it's true. It's like giving the same diagnosis to everyone. So when you were talking about, and this is exactly where I wanted to lead the conversation. So thank you for the segue. When you were talking about helping people one by one, um, I know that you've been involved in a lot of interventions. I know some of the people who have worked with you on them and I was wondering if you could provide for the listeners and viewers a little flavor about what that has been like for you, but also if there's some stories, I'm sure there are, you know, these moments that stand out. And of course, you don't have to reveal people's names or locations, but just those moments that stay in your head that were either so powerful or pivotal to the success or not of a particular intervention. So I'm curious about that. Well, uh, well, again, intervention to me, the cult intervention uh, or what they call deprogramming is basically education. It's it's trying to get someone involved in a long involved conversation uh, about various things that concern the group they're involved in or the belief system that they have and why they might be having conflicts with their family their spouse or even their adult children about 
about this kind of thing. So it's generally a family affair. An intervention ha uh, has no basis unless there's someone that invites the intervener in, you know, to, to be a bridge to talk to the person that's in, in the group. So there has to be some concern expressed. And, and then legitimate concern. There has to be some facts of information, uh, you know, like ex-member stories, for instance, uh, maybe some history on the leader that shows that they've been deceptive in the past, maybe that they had a different past than what they're giving out now, they changed their name. You know, so there has to be some basis for the intervention or else it's not going to go anywhere. You, you have to have a way of, of deconstructing the person's belief system, but in a friendly way, in a way that doesn't make them feel like you're accusing them of being ignorant or, or stupid or, or whatever, you know, it has to be done with a lot of respect. That's difficult. That's difficult because no one likes their belief system challenged. And uh, so I, I got into the field inadvertently, uh, obviously, when I left Church Universal and Triumphant, uh, people that were in the group asked me why I left because they, you know, suddenly I'm gone. And I talked to a few of them afterwards that were fairly close to me. And in my discussions with them, they decided to leave wow. based on the reasons I used, you know, which were very what I would call primitive from what I understand now about this whole thing, you know, because this was back in 1980, in 1980. So how long ago is that now? 41 year, 40 years ago. Uh, I picked up a lot of information since then. But basically, it's the same thing is, is just pointing out the discrepancies in the movement, shrinking the leader down from being some kind of a, a demigod or a prophet down to eye level. Because they're just human and these are the mistakes they're making, you know, mm. and um, and, you know, you're not going to lose your soul if you stop believing in them. You know, that's the other part of the equation. And, and also tapping into the ambivalence that these people already had, because anybody that gets into these high demand groups or extreme groups does have some ambivalence if they're thinking at all. And they question things while they're in the group. So the exit counselor or the person intervening has to be able to tap those feelings of ambivalence and, and follow through on where that goes and then have the information ready so that the person can consider it and decide whether it makes sense and, and that, that they don't want to be involved in this constriction that the group has put them in. So basically I see the education uh, uh, process in, in intervention as a, expanding the person's point of view with solid information so that they feel the constriction in the group and they know that if they make a decision, they have to leave. They can't stand it anymore. In other words, the group no longer fits them psychologically, spiritually, socially, financially, all kinds of ways. It no longer fits and they want to take it off or get out of it and, and, and breathe openly and more freely in a more open society. One story I'll give um, that I do write about uh, that really clued me into what intervention and exit counseling was. I, I met a young lady at this mall when I left CUT, and she came up to me, asked me to do a portrait. I was doing portraits there. Again, it's the art angle. Um, she wanted a portrait of herself to give to her fiance. Uh, she asked me if I was born again. A long conversation started. I learned she was part of a little four square church in, in Santa Fe. And the preacher was a prophet, and he had arranged a marriage with this guy in a church. 
So I just listened to her and let her talk to me about her group. And then I flipped it around when we had time at the mall, you know, when she came in early. I told her my story about I had just left this group and why. Interestingly enough, both groups used the King James Bible. And both groups were using the same quotes to manipulate people a certain way. So I just turned to that from this new age group going into her little Bible cult and 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 uh, pointed out some things that I thought were just way off the mark or shouldn't be interpreted that way by her leader. So a week later, she came to me and, and uh, the, the portrait was done. And I said, I hope your fiance is happy with it. She goes, I'm not going to give it to him. I'm going to give it to my parents. I decided to leave the church. I'm not getting married anymore. She had called her parents. They hadn't seen her in six months. They'd have no idea where she was because the preacher had convinced her that they were apostates. They were, and and yet, so to finish the story, I'm about to leave for this trip to India around the world. And I don't have a phone in January, about a month after Christmas. And I'm at a gas station in Santa Fe and this car stops. A man jumps out and he says, hey, are you Joe? And I looking at him and I, and it turns out that, He's in the car with his daughter, the one I had exit counsel from the Foursquare Church. I call her Lisa in the book, with his wife, and they're just taking her home to Texas after you know she left the cult and everything. And uh, they he just started shaking my hand. I don't know how to thank you. What you know? What can I do? So they took me out to to lunch, and uh, we had a long talk. They prayed before lunch. I mean, these people were were Baptists. They weren't like some you know freaks that didn't believe in jesus they were christians and yet this more extreme christian group got their daughter away from them you know for six months it was really bizarre but that was my first kind of experience with a family intervention but it was kind of inadvertent but it taught me a lot and and the same Mm -hmm. principles i used in that intervention i still use today if i talk to someone it's a matter of getting rapport somehow it's a matter of letting them tell you what's on their mind, why they believe what they believe, mm-hmm. you know, and then giving them information back to, to, get, to let them consider other points of view. And, and that's it. That was it. The first one I did is still the same framework. Right. And I, and I think also with how much you are an observer through being an artist and also just watching human interaction and the work that you do in the field that you do, your, your, your day job, uh, along with being a very talented artist, it's probably happened that you've had a lot of things prepared leading into an intervention. And then once you were there, you kind of read the situation or read the person and put things to the side and shifted gears. And it, it feels like that's probably what makes it successful along the way that it's not, you, you can have ideas about how to do it, but it's not formulaic uh, or that it can't be. It has to be kind of individual. And I wonder if, you, if you've had that happen where you just sort of took all of your, the mental notes and scrapped them and went a different direction based on what was happening in front of you. Yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. Um, in fact, early on in my career, I, I, I learned to, kind of erased my my presuppositions before I met a person. I, I wanted to try to just uh, absorb the meeting like I'm meeting a stranger and um, and let it go from there. You know, so yeah, sometimes the 
the reason the person's in the group has very little to do with the belief system. And I don't find that out till after I get there. You know, it, it, it could be something else that, that, that got them involved. Just the idea that they felt comfortable with the people in the group mm -hmm. and, you know, and, or, you know, and the belief system came second. So yeah, I have to let myself learn about the situation once I arrive and not necessarily believe what the family told me ahead of time about that individual or the spouse told me because you you have to let all that go and let kind of a natural flow of, of information come to you from that person or else they're not going to trust you uh you have to let them let you know who they are mm -hmm. you know once and and also i learned this too that um and and other people, I'm not going to mention this, but there was a, a, a couple that, that worked very well doing this, where almost the first day during the intervention, they would give reasons why the group was good to the family in front of the person that they're trying to get out of this major cult. So there, there's no criticism going on. In fact, they're, they're doing all the selling points that you would do to recruit someone into the group. And, and in doing that, and I've done this myself, the person listening to you that's in the group knows, seems to think you know more about the group than they do, even though they're, they're believers, you know? So you're sort of selling, like, I'll give you an example. I had a Harry Krishna case once in, in the South and uh, the young man agreed to meet with me because he had gotten very sick um, and the Harry Krishna's did not want to pay for his medical bills. So they sent him home so the family could take care of him. When he got better, he would come back to the group. And so the family invited me down to talk to him while he was there. Mm -hmm. He thought after the first couple of hours of spending time with me and the family that I was a Hindu because I was talking somewhat intelligently about the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and, and the history of the Hare Krishna and some of Prabhupada's uh, writings. And, you know, right. I, I was at least somewhat articulate. With, with the language. And um, so that bonded him with me to some extent. Mm -hmm. You know, he was surprised that I wasn't involved in some part of the Hindu faith. It was just an example of, of how to gain rapport. Mm -hmm. When you don't go in criticism, criticizing, you can actually go in explaining and being very neutral about the group and, and talking about its positive points for quite a while before trying to turn a corner with someone and, and go into criticism. I really like that idea. I think it also helps just in terms of the social dynamics that then the person doesn't feel they have to prove something to you about how wonderful the group was, maybe even beyond what they believe to be true and maybe beyond what they are really feeling just because they feel like they have to dig their heels in or out of you know defensiveness or pride. You, so you don't trigger any of that and you kind of lower the wall so that they can approach you. You said something interesting about how, you know, it seemed like you knew more about the group than they did. And in fact, you, you may have found this, but sometimes that's the case that even if you haven't been in it or because you haven't been in it, you've had access or the freedom to access more information about the group than the people in it, which I think people don't realize when you know people are coming in from the outside and they're saying what would you know and you know a lot of times you could say well actually more than you're you're capable or that you have the freedom to access unfortunately when you're involved in a group right 
Yeah. Uh, th that helps a lot to study the group ahead of time. I mean, it, it takes a lot of research. It's not an easy business, this exit counseling or intervention, as you know. Um, and that's why I think that really the people doing it, the numbers have shrunk considerably in the last couple of decades. There just isn't, and I don't see young people getting into it hardly at all, unless there's something going on that I don't know. It's just not an easy way to make a living, and, and it takes an enormous amount of personal effort to, to learn about what a group teaches if you've never heard of it before, before you go in to do an intervention. You know, you've got to read a couple of books, you've got to do research, interview ex-members, uh, get a working knowledge of it. Uh, you know, otherwise, you're really not doing your job as a consultant in order to, to help the person. Um, you know, like, right. For instance, the one reason I had a lot of success with uh, people that were involved with this guy, Zen Master Rama, Frederick Lenz, for years, I'd gotten dozens of people out of that group during interventions, is that I had a background researching Carlos Castaneda, who was this fake shaman that wrote all these fiction books that he claimed were his real spiritual adventures with this um, um, Yaki sorcerer named Don Juan, Don Juan Mattis. He was a fictional character, but you would believe he was real mm -hmm. if you read the books. Uh, so the strength of my information just on that, and, and also on Sri Chimnoy, who was the guy that Frederick Lenz studied with. I had a lot of background mm. on him. Mm. By, by bringing all that into the intervention, I didn't even have to talk about Lenz. You know, once you undermine the validity of those two sources, you could see the teachings of Lenz begin to deteriorate within the mind of the person listening to me. And I wasn't even talking about their guru yet. You know, so uh, because Lenz used a lot of Castaneda ideas in his teachings, mm. you know, something called the second attention and all kinds of terms that the people in the group may have not read about. That's an, an, another aid that a exit counselor has is they might have information that is a a, a foundation to the group, but is not apparent to the people that believe in, in the teachings. Right, right. And you mentioned some interesting names, and I hope people listening will be looking some of these up. I remember with uh, Shri Chinmoy uh, hearing that he was doing his uh, courses or having his meetings in the UN building in New York, which I think gave him this guise of credibility. Well, what it was was he would advertise on his on his uh, on his letterheads, United Nations Guru or, or United Nations Meditation Guru, you know, and and all he did was use a room that I could use at the United Nations to give a class on something, you know. Right, and so it it's so interesting because there are people who will then back away, thinking, oh well, you know, he must have some sort of credentials if he's using a room at the UN. But it's like a lot of these cults that were on college campuses who were part of the student union using buildings and after and or classrooms or wherever else meeting rooms. And after students would get involved in these organizations, they would drop out of school because that was really the intention right. of this organization that the university was housing. So. You know, it's not enough just to sort of look at um, the the obvious. You really need to kind of dig in. Same thing, I guess, with Frederick Lenz, with Zen Master Rama. I remember him with this big curly right. hair. Uh, that I know that he was training people in computers in his group. So I think people thought they were getting good life skills. Well, he didn't. He didn't have any computer skills. 
he wasn't very good. Maybe <laughs> word processing was about it. But uh -huh. but he encouraged all of his people to get into computer programming, which is not easy. And a lot of them weren't equipped for it, you know, mentally or emotionally to do that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And some were very good at it and they made quite a bit of money. But he wanted mm -hmm. all of them to get into it, more or less, unless they already had a job as a lawyer or, you know, something that was bringing in money. Uh -huh. But the reason right. he did that was twofold. One, he knew that there was a lot of money in, in that business if they could get into it with getting contracts. Secondly, they could work from home. They wouldn't have to interact socially. And part of his teaching was that this world out here contaminates your aura, your, your, your sense of being. Mm. And you need to mm -hmm. be around only very elite or high level energies. So he mm -hmm. had his people living in very high end neighborhoods, but renting cheap rooms, you know, or whatever they needed to do. They had to kind right. of look good, um, get a high end car, even though they were only leasing it. Um, mm -hmm. And he also, on the other hand, had them living so that they could move out of their place within a couple of hours, that, that everything they owned of any value could be put in a car and they could leave. So he had them living in two extremes, you know. Now, he, of course, lived in, in a million-dollar mansion, like in Long Island, and he had another place in um, Tosuki, New Mexico, a very, you know, kind of an upscale rural neighborhood. Um, mm -hmm. so he, he lived that private life, but in a very opulent way. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I estimated on a bad month, he was pulling in at least fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 in cash donations. At the time too. That's an incredible. At the time, that was a lot of money. And still is. But that's over like a 10 year span when he was really active. That's incredible. So just coming full circle from where you were starting. And then I know we need to call it a day, even though you have about four days of facts and names and everything in your head <laughs> that you right. can rattle off that I always learn from. And I write down so many, so many good things. You really are a treasure trove of information. Going back to this idea of, of art being the way in, we, we find in this field and you've come across it, I'm sure more often because you're also in the art world of people who are artists who are open to other ways of thinking, of seeing things, of interpreting things, which to some degree makes them not susceptible because they don't want someone to tell them how to see things. Mm -hmm. But also I found sometimes makes them more susceptible to people um, offering them this sort of unique stance. Right. And I'm wondering about the artist and how the artist out there who is listening now too can keep themselves safe while still being able to preserve that openness to other ways of thinking interesting question um yeah the art world and i of course have been in it through art schools and college and the dance world my wife is a professional dancer and was a professional dancer for when she was young and she teaches still today uh teaching ballet and and, and other forms of dance um Artistic people are vulnerable to crazy ideas, okay? So because they stretch into worlds which don't necessarily make a lot of sense to people um, and, and, you know, poetic worlds rather than prosaic worlds, magical worlds rather than concrete, you know, science worlds, th that kind of thing. So th there, there's a lot of that going on. So what I found was that artists, a lot of them don't, don't necessarily 
belong to a cult because one, to do your art, you can't spend a lot of time in a high demand group. It just doesn't work. So what happens is a lot of artists will, for instance, practice TM, Transcendental Meditation. You know, I know a lot of them. A lot of artists I know believe they have some kind of psychic awareness, psychic premonitions and powers. They believe in that world. Um, a lot of artists I know believe in astrology. You know, a lot of artists I know will will uh, uh, fall prey to um, um, an internet scam now and then, how to sell their art, you know, or something like that. So they tend to be more vulnerable to what I call magical influence because their world is magical and, and they kind of want to believe in, in that kind of impulse that something from within can be can become something valuable for other people to buy or to enjoy or whatever it is that they do. A lot of artists are not science oriented. They're not what I would call um, uh, practicing skeptics. They all say they're skeptical, you know. So whenever I hear someone say to me, oh, I'm a skeptical person, I go, well, okay, there is no such thing as a skeptical person. There is someone that knows how to apply skepticism properly. Okay, that's different than being a skeptical person. <laughs> so I think when people say they're skeptical, it means, well, I don't believe everything I hear or, you know, I'm, I'm not easily fooled. That's what they're trying to say. And when I hear that, or let's say when a con artist hears that, they'll agree. Oh, I, you know, you're one of the most skeptical people I ever met. And before you know it, they're buying the snake oil. <laughs> you know, so, you know, that, that's the kind of an ego, the narcissism that a con artist or a cult leader can feed into very easily is the person that claims they're skeptical. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And I, and I'm glad that you're, you know, you're addressing it from your own particular standpoint. You're not just talking about artists. You're an artist yourself and I've seen your work and I'd love also for people to be able to know about your websites and where to access your work. And also from your wife being a dancer, there's so many people who are musicians and actors and others who got involved in cults that, said that they were going to help promote their careers and we're going to give them these gifts. And then all of that died for the most part. Um, unless they could have something that was sort of commercially uh, successful right away that would bring money into the group, then they were supposed to shelve all of that and were usually too exhausted uh, to... And, and, you know, didn't have the freedom of thought anyway, because they were busy memorizing everything they needed to memorize. And yeah, or, or working for the group, recruiting people or whatever, you know, they, they that that's right. And you're exactly right. People that come in with already celebrity and talent, the cults will milk them like a cash cow. They'll let them do their acting and everything and and have them at very high ends of the group, you know, very special treatment. Um you know, we don't have to name groups. We know a lot of groups that do that kind of thing with, with people that, that have a lot of money. They treat them very specially. They don't have to do all the things that the average grunt in, in, in the organization does. It's really true. Oh, it's just more about the hierarchy that exists within these, within these groups. Okay. So to, as we finish up, and thank you so much for your time sure. today. And, and can you let people know what websites to access to look at your work and also to find your book? Yeah, well, you know, here again is a book. It's got my picture on it. It's also available as an ebook, so uh, cheaper and, and easier to carry around with you if you have a um, any kind of a smartphone. You can read it. Basically, if you just 
put my name in a search engine, Simhart, S-Z-I-M-H-A-R-T. It's a very rare name. Only my family has it in the United States. And um, uh, so if you put that in and cult, you'll see my website come up right away, jsimhart.com. And I have some of my artwork on there. It's it's a self-produced Yahoo website. It's not very, I don't update it very often, but it's got a lot of articles and information on it. And maybe about a hundred of my paintings are on there that are sold or unsold or, or, or on the website. Yeah, I'll be um, on another podcast soon at Albright College nearby uh, talking about this new series of art that I've done, which is all about words. I won't go into it any more than that. Okay. But <laughs> Interesting. You know, that, that's uh, uh, my next show. I've done like 30 paintings in that series. So we'll see if I can get a gallery to accept it or not. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck with your book. It's wonderful. And and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye now. One more thing before you go. It has been quite astounding that so much of what people experience within cultic groups and what drew them to channelers and other people who had guidance and answers is still so prevalent today, if not more so. We are going through a resurgence, an incredible mind-boggling resurgence of fringe groups and conspiracy theories and end-time prophecies and people searching for answers and safety and wanting to tie themselves to a group that will give them protection and seems to promise its devotees that it provides the only way to access information that no one else can access, but everyone seems to suddenly need. What's also so fascinating to me about all of this is how much it doesn't matter if that information is true. It just seems to matter if it's considered hidden or esoteric or having been kept from people by the powers that be, the government, the man, the people you have learned to or have always or staunchly mistrusted. There's a groundswell of what I call paranoid prophecies, and people are clinging to the path to safety and to people they consider to be the voices of reason, the only ones that they can somehow trust. And it makes me feel secure, they might say. It calms my nerves. And also, for some people, they will say, it kind of makes me feel like I have stumbled upon the Holy Grail and that somehow I am among the enlightened and anointed ones and the lucky ones and those of the very few who will be saved or will be able to keep my loved ones safe. It's like opening a door to a maze where you're told that you will win the ultimate prize when you get to the other end, but the maze just keeps you in the maze. And along the way, you get little bits of information and a sense of community with other people who are in the maze with you and who get to feel like somehow you're all working towards a goal while the people outside the maze who have not been fortuitous enough to stumble upon that door that led them into the maze are just somehow sitting around doing nothing and wasting time and being foolish and stupidly believing the news and poisoning themselves with vaccines and drinking water and exposure to chemtrails while you in the maze are calmed and satisfied by feeling directed and focused and, most of all, sure. 
But because conspiracy theories are endless, it's a maze that just leads to another maze and then to another maze. But when you're in it, you don't see how you're not getting any closer to the end, to the answer, to the truth. There is actually sometimes a genuine disinterest in many of these groups for scientific research and input. There's very little interest in opposing viewpoints. There's very little interest in having people point out that the things that you are being protected from supposedly are things that might not exist or might exist, but are not actually dangerous to you in the way that you are being told they're dangerous because keeping you frightened keeps you dependent. And very unfortunately, in many of these conspiratorial groups and end-time Armageddon groups, there is often hatred and distrust and xenophobia and racism and anti-Semitism. They often seem to go hand in hand. This fear cultivates a sense that not only do we need to keep ourselves safe, but we need to identify and target those who must be causing this danger. And we will then find lots of quote-unquote proof to be somehow guiding us, or we're going to be open to people who present us with quote-unquote proof and will be able to tell us how this whole problem started. And it's usually with those people, whoever those people are, who are different from us and are the usual and age-old scapegoats. The irony is palpable to me. One would think that a group that is considered to be part of a fringe group that is connected to a fringe idea where they know they're not going to be accepted by the mainstream and maybe roundly dismissed or looked down upon or humiliated or sidelined as different. I would think that they would be cautious at the very least or sensitive at the very most to others in this world who have also been sidelined and dismissed, harassed, and looked down upon because they're not part of the mainstream. But I think the focus seems to be too internally driven for people within this maze. And they're too focused on keeping themselves safe to see that irony. They might think they have to keep themselves safe at all costs. And sometimes that translates into being a minority who then targets another minority as the source of the danger. It's low-hanging fruit. And it's not respectful and actually not respectable. And sometimes it's actually dangerous. I've talked to a number of people who for quite some time were very invested in groups that made them feel like they had their finger on the pulse of the truth. And they bought all their canned goods because the end of the world was coming and they helped build the bomb shelter that would keep them safe during Armageddon or World War III or during an alien invasion or when the fill-in-the-blank minority group was going to come and take everything away from them or whenever one would get poisoned by the drinking water or by ingredients in toothpaste or anything else and they had to make sure somehow that they were safe. They talk about having spent a lot of years preparing for something that never happened. And they spent a lot of time feeling very good and energized and confident and also very much like they were doing the right thing if they were also providing these goods and services and ideas and information to those they love. They were pumped up like they felt like they were on a high. Sometimes it's all they talked about. And they lost jobs and friendships and relationships over this because there was a cost to not being able to stop talking about this. 
and needing to bring people into their organization and being focused on it all the time to the exclusion of everything else and everyone else. And many of them then realized that they were starting to be taken down a path that was endless, where if they got a certain air purifier for their underground bunker, then they were often told they got an air purifier that was now considered insufficient and they would need to buy another one. And there was someone online who was part of these communities who would be happy to sell them one that was better and more expensive. And that the food they had stockpiled was somehow poisoned or was made in a country that had it out for them so they couldn't trust the contents of those cans or bags of food. So they had to throw them all away and start all over again and buy new products from someone who said they had the ones that were truly safe. And they bought the books written by the first person they were following into this maze and down this path. And then they bought the books of the person who debunked the first person and said they had the actual answer and then bought the books or became subscribers to the YouTube channel of the next person who came along who debunked the first and the second person because they had the real truth. And after years and loss of savings and isolation from friends and family or being unable to maintain a job because of the anger and the frustration that was surging in them because of not being taken seriously and not being heard, and also with the realization that was growing inside of them that maybe they were just being pulled along by the next charismatic and urgent voice they heard. And they realized they were no farther along towards anything really and didn't have anything to show for all of this time and all of this sacrifice and misguided trust. And maybe instead what many of these people needed was to address their fears and sometimes paranoia and their anxieties and obsessiveness and get help with that before of being open or drawn into this intense and head-spinning world, and then being pulled and pushed by one conspiracy after another. It reminds me of a quote, actually, by the baseball catcher Yogi Berra, who was a philosopher in his own way. And the quote is, if you don't know where you're going, you might wind up someplace else. So try to figure out first what the root of the issue is, why you distrust everyone in positions of authority, why you distrust any idea that is mainstream, what you need in order to feel safe and remain safe, and what you need in order to calm your nerves and to not be then taken advantage of by those who will take advantage of people who are afraid. And please remember that science is not your enemy. Research, opposing viewpoints, and critical thinking are not your enemy. They all afford you the chance to know more and to make educated and smart decisions. You don't have to agree with them, but you should never be kept from accessing them. That is your right. They just don't want you to find out that they're wrong. And before signing off today, I just wanna make sure to say that we at the podcast are hoping for all of you for good health and for safety. And we send you support if you are struggling during this time in any way, or know and love those who are struggling in any way. We wish you well. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you wanna to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.